Hello again. I uh, had a question come up on a webinar and um, then a subsequent email um, from uh, somebody listening in who has been shooting using JPEG and wanted to know more about workflow when you're shooting raw, which is what I always recommend. So I thought it was worth spending a little time just talking about the differences uh, between shooting JPEG and shooting RAW on your camera and why you would want to shoot RAW <laughs> and um, why I always recommend it. And then also how that impacts the workflow. So um, having shot my image in RAW, what do I then do with it? Because usually uh, certain images, any images that you see from me that appear on social media will be JPEG. So ultimately I am converting to JPEG but there is a whole process behind that and there is a good reason for using that process. Having said that, the process isn't as difficult and as potentially intimidating as I think um, some people may view it. So that's the reason for putting together this podcast. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm going to start by talking about three different types of file. So the first is the raw file. And that's the file that's created on your camera. So, that, and what I mean by a raw file is it's in generally in a format that's native to the camera. So, what I mean by that is it's specific to the camera manufacturer. Now, I use Canon, and their files have the extender CR2. Um, if you're using, um, I've got an Olympus, and to be honest, I forgot what the file extender is, but it will be O something rather. So you might see these files coming off your camera with these funny extenders on them. They are what we refer to as native format, so they're specific to that particular camera, and that's what the camera manufacturer is using with their camera. Now, the next question, of course, is can you read them on your computer? Uh, and the answer is possibly but possibly not as well. So with some of these native formats, you might need a reader from the manufacturers. So again, I haven't bought a new camera in a little while. And when I did last buy them, we'd get a CD-ROM. So you'd stick that in your computer when they would take CDs. And part of that software uh, bundle that was on there might be uh, or would be a reader, an editor for the raw format. Now, um, as I've said, I'm a little a little out of date with that stuff. So if you're using something like Photoshop, which is what I use, and I'm pretty sure Lightroom's the same, you can read pretty much any native format anyway. So if you're already using one of those editors, you don't need to worry about the, um, the specific editor for the file that's coming off your camera. Now, if you've just been using JPEG, this might be a whole new thing to you. So I'm going to talk through the different files. And but what I would stress is to think about how you want to use the final image. Because if you're only using it for things like social media, possibly websites, anywhere where it's only ever going to be seen on a computer screen, then I would say shooting in JPEG is probably fine in terms of the practical approach and producing a final image that is suitable for what you are going to be using it for. 
I would say if you're shooting photographs that you might want to blow up, might want to have on your wall, might want want to put in a photo book or something like that, then I would definitely think about shooting in RAW because there is a huge difference in image quality. And that's what I'm going to be talking about um, as we move into the other two file types that I'm now going to mention. So we've got the RAW format, which is native to the camera, a, a, a kind of general editor like Photoshop. Now, you used to be able to get Photoshop Elements, which I think it was free, and I don't know if you, it's still available because I'm on Creative Cloud, um, which is a, a subscription uh, package to Adobe. So the, the basic one, so just to give you an idea, as I record this, it costs me, I think it's uh, €11.99 Euros a month, and that gives me Photoshop, the raw editor. Um, there's another... Uh, package called Bridge, which is like um, uh, a light table where you'd put slides or negatives on, but it basically means you can just look at a whole bunch of different pictures and pick out the ones you want to work with. So there's a few things there, and it's essentially a photographer's package. It's a fairly basic one, and it really depends if you want to spend that much money every month on um, on a software package, and I guess that would come back to how often are you going to be using it. Obviously, I'm using it quite a lot, so it makes sense for me to have something like that, but for you, it may not. So getting back to the file types. So I will start with a raw file, the CR2 file off the camera. When I bring that into Photoshop, first of all, that's a big file. So I will have said before that when I'm storing an image on the camera, I go for the biggest possible file size um, I can capture. And that's because it gives me the as much detail, the biggest resolution I can get on that image. So it means that before I even do anything else, I've already got a good sized image. If it's something that's going to end up printed on a wall, I've, I'm already giving myself the best place to start. Now, a minor aside, one of the other file types I'm going to talk about is JPEG, obviously. So that's one of the three. And you may have seen a setting on your camera and it will vary um, from manufacturer to manufacturer, but it would be something like RAW plus JPEG, so R-A-W plus plus sign JPG. Um, If you've got that as an option, what that usually means is that the camera will store both a RAW version of the image, a RAW file, and the JPEG, a compressed version of the image. So that might be something worth worth thinking about. I don't use it myself because I only ever want the RAW on the camera. Uh, One of the reasons I don't do that is that if you're trying to shoot um, burst images, so you really need to be shooting one image after another very quickly, to to actually save RAW and JPEG, the camera has to process the file. So that means the computer in the camera is working harder and it's writing two files to the memory card rather than one. That can slow down the burst speed if you're pushing the camera to its limit. So just something to think about there. Okay, so we've got our native format might be CR2. We bring it into something like Photoshop and then we've got this big file with lots of detail on it and we can then start to edit it and it might be correcting the contrast, it might be correcting exposure, it might be um, changing the contrast or the the lighting in certain parts of the image so that we what you produce at the end is the image that you kind of had in your mind when you shot it or that you can emphasize certain parts maybe an animal's eyes might be um what you're really trying to bring out 
but whatever it is for that image. Um, I'm going to come back to workflow in a moment, actually within Photoshop and what, and what I do, just to give you an idea. But for me, that generally takes me two minutes. So I'm not spending lots and lots of time on every image. It, it's unusual for me to spend more than two minutes on an image. So you've got this raw file, you've made some changes to it, and you don't, you don't I can't even speak. <laughs> you then need to save it. And the format that I use to save my images in is a thing called TIFF. So I'm just going to say these file names, um, so JPEG and TIFF, they don't kind of mean, they do have a meaning. So JPEG actually stands for Joint Photographic Experts Group, um, although it's shortened to JPG, but that's where that name comes from. So that's all it is. And TIFF stands for Tag Image File Format. So the reason for mentioning this is to just to demystify it a bit because I, I, you know, I want all this to be accessible. And the other thing is because they are stand standardized by independent bodies, it means that most computers can read both files. So if you were to put a TIFF file on your computer, both Macs and um, Windows computers, most of them should be able to just read that file without any special software. And that's why I'm kind of making um or emphasizing the difference between those files and something like the raw file that will come off the camera, which isn't defined by an independent body usually. It's um, produced by the camera manufacturer, so access can be more restricted. Okay, so what? why would I use a TIFF file? Well, the TIFF file is a compressed file, although looking at the file sizes, you might find that hard to believe, but it's what we call a lossless compression. So the reason that the files are so big, generally both the raw file and the TIFF, is that they have all of the data that was captured by the camera, every pixel, all, all the you know, all the sort of subtleties that you would have in a photograph. They're all captured in the full detail, the full resolution that the camera was capt- capable of capturing. When we go to something like, when we go to JPEG, we call that a lossy compression. And we call that lossy because what it does, its aim is to reduce the file size to something very small so that it can be very quickly shared and very quickly downloaded. If you're on a website, for example, having a quick download of pictures is really important because most people want to see the pictures come up pretty well straight away. They're not going to be sitting there for 10, 20, 30 seconds for a TIFF file to download. And it might even be longer than that. So these file types are standard. Once you get away from the camera, you're then using um, standard file types and they can be used anywhere. So the TIFF file is what we call a lossless um, compression. And that basically means it just keeps all of the data that was in the original uh, file that came off the camera. So why would you use the TIFF file? Well, it does mean you can do all of the detailed editing that you would do on the original file from the camera. You can also put in what we call transparencies. That might be a logo, something like that, or a watermark that you want to put on the image to stop people from copying it. Now, um, some... Some place I'm just trying to think of will, I think, allow you to put watermarks on a JPEG. But basically, JPEG itself, other than JPEG 2000, which is a very short-lived um, format, which did allow you to have transparency, but I don't believe it's um, 
supported anymore. But you can't put those kind of things into the image. So TIFF is where you would do that. Um, TIFF is also, as I say, where you would do most of the editing to produce the, the final image that you're looking for. Um, I'll talk about that now. The other reason that I use TIFFs is that I use other software when I'm producing an image to be sold as um, a fine art print. And what I mean by fine art, fine art, because some people don't like me using that term, it's just the quality of the paper and the print process that I use. It's much higher quality. So the kind of prints I'm producing, if you like, are um, a very high quality. They're not the poster prints. They're not the sort of things you would buy um, from off, off the web for, you know, $10, 10 euros, whatever it might be. That's not what I'm doing. That's a very simple printing process. It's not particularly high resolution. What I'm doing is much higher resolution. This is really quality stuff. So the software I use from a company called Topaz Labs, I use several of their packages. They all work on the TIFF file. So and that's the file that I work on. The final file that I use might be the JPEG. When I do my printing, um, often it is the JPEG, and that's simply because the file size I've got there, uh, the JPEG is typically about 250 megs, so it's a big file. But if I was to send that as a TIFF file, it's over a gig. And um, I, I don't have good internet here, and it, it's always problematic for me, so, uh, excuse me, sending those big files. So <clears throat> that's where the JPEG comes in. The JPEG would be used for the final version, the final use of the print uh, of the image, whether it's to be printed as long as it's up in a you know very high detail JPEG, or if it's going to social media, in which case it's going to be 10 megs or less, most likely, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, websites, anything like that, you're going to want a, J a JPEG because it, it, it downloads very quickly to the person's computer or their phone. But it is only the final version. You never edit the JPEG. Um, I will mention one other thing, actually. The, there are packages which convert JPEG to RAW. Um, look, that might be useful to you. I've not used them. And the problem you've got is still the original JPEG is a compressed lossy file. So when you convert back to RAW, or if you're converting a JPEG to a TIFF, for example, you might get a bigger file. But that can't add detail. You know, you've already lost the detail by producing the JPEG. So whatever you get from that stage, if you're using your JPEG as the source file, that's going to be a much lower quality image than if you're using um, the camera raw file or a TIFF file. So I hope this is all making sense. So that's spoken about the um, file types. What do I do when I'm in Photoshop? Well, really, I don't do very much. The first thing I do is to just look at the overall um, contrast. So if you look at the exposure histogram, and this is what will pop up on the back of your camera, probably if you're using um, a fairly recent camera with an LCD on the back, quite often what you will see pop up, or if you start to view your image um, after you've taken it, one of the views you can have shows a histogram. And that's showing really from the brightest part of the picture through the darkest where all the data is. So normally that would be um, a fairly even spread. You might get a bit of a hump in the middle, but it goes, but the, the data there is completely filling the histogram. 
sometimes you'll see that all of the data is at one end of the histogram or the other. And that either means that the photograph is underexposed or it's overexposed. So I'll have a look at that. And if I find that most of the image or the data for the image is up at one end or the other, um, in Photoshop, if you go to levels, um, you can just put a move a slider along. And what it does is it basically stops Photoshop working or trying to do something with the area of the image that has no data in it. So effectively, it shortens the available data range open to Photoshop. So it means that you're only ever working with um, parts of the file that have data in it, which you know makes a lot of sense because what's the point on trying to change something where there's nothing there in the first place? So that's there. So if you go and have a look at that, it's called Levels. Um, oh, I'm hopeless at remembering my sequences, but um, anyway... Check it. Sorry about that. Check it out. You can always email me. And um, that will show you on the histogram. Sometimes when these things look okay, I might click on auto just to see what the software does. And I, I'll either like it or I won't. Um, probably about 50-50 on that, to be perfectly honest. If I don't like it, I ignore it and I'll just do my own thing. The other thing I then do is go to the um, the raw filter. So that's basically using the, the camera raw um editor and sometimes again i'll just look at the auto setting and just see what it does to my image but generally i don't use it so that's probably 95 percent. i wouldn't use that but I'm, I'm always curious to see what the camera will or what the software will produce just to give me a check and then i go into the basic um editing uh tab if you like and what i'll generally do is wind down all the highlights all of the um, whites and also wind down the saturation and the vibrancy in, in the color, not all the way down with color with um, saturation and vibrancy, but just part of the way down because the changes I make next do affect how vivid the colors are. And I want to kind of um, focus more on contrast. So I then go to a thing called curves, which is the tab below on the current version of Photoshop anyway. And there you have four sliders, and they each work with different aspects. Uh, well, the first three work with different parts of the um, the histogram, so the top end, the middle, and the bottom. Then you've got shadow, uh, which you can vary as well. So I tend to just slide those until I'm getting a version of the image that, to me, I'll use the phrase pops, but it's like it's starting to come out of the screen. I'm getting a contrast that makes the image feel 3D. It's the only way I can describe it. And obviously um, on a, an audio <laughs> um, uh, medium, I can't really um, show you examples, but that's where I go. Then I go back to the basic setting and I set up the color. So the color saturation so that it's where I want it. Now, obviously um, with all of these settings, this is now personal preference because you can argue what's right and what's wrong. But Photography is an art form, so really what's right and what's wrong, what's right and wrong for the viewer or the artist, you know, you can look at it from either direction. But in this instance, you're the artist if you're creating this image. So it comes down to what works for you and what works for you might not be what works for me. So um, this is why I say it becomes personal. So... I like to bring the colours up a little bit, but I'll tend to use grass because there's normally grass or leaves or something green in my image. 
And I try and set that color as a reference color so that it looks normal. So that anybody at home who would look out the window and see some grass and then look at my image, the saturation is more or less the same so that they can relate to the image. It looks real. That's what I go for. Now, some nature photographers, wildlife photographers like to have a lot of saturation in there, like bright colors. So really, that's a case of, as I say, personal preference. I tend to use saturation first because saturation brings up everything. um, Vibrancy tends to just work on certain colors. I find um, vibrancy works more with blues. I'll use, so having done a lot of uh, whale photography, uh, that's where the vibrancy, I tend to adjust that more to get the blues right because sometimes the blue looks too vivid or, or not bright enough. So that's where I'll tend to use that. And that honestly is more or less it. I might use texture a tiny bit, bit and um, clarity, I think, is the other slider with that. But I don't use that very much. Um, it, it sometimes, If you've got fur, things like that, it can bring out the detail a little bit. But it's very easy to overdo it. And then you start getting um, a, a sort of pixelated look or a very... It, it doesn't look natural. It, it doesn't look a natural look. So that's what I'm going for when I'm working um, with these sliders. And as I say, that is pretty much it. So what I'll then do is save that file as a TIFF. And um, usually I'll call it something else. So I won't, um, or sorry, I should say, if I'm working directly off the raw um, file, so the CR2, I'll just save it as a TIFF. But that TIFF is edited. And then that's the file that will go through the Topaz Labs process to bring me out with um, a final image, which is ready for printing. Um, The thing I'll that I will edit on um, Photoshop, depending on where the image is going to be used, is the pixels per inch. So on image size, if you're using Photoshop, you've got the um, dimensions of the image, and that can be in inches, millimeters, or pixels. I tend to use pixels. And that can define, you can define how long you want the longest edge to be, for example. And uh, that's useful because In some um, applications that's specified or a maximum file size might be specified. And this is where using a JPEG can be quite handy. But I'll look at the PPI. So if I'm doing something to go into um, a photo book, for example, I'd really want the um, uh, pixels per inch to be around 300, maybe slightly higher, because that gives me a good quality print. If I'm looking at something that's going to be used in social media, I can drop that down to 72 um, uh, PPI because that's a low res, but most monitors are, and even digital projectors are relatively low res when you compare to printing something. Now, to give you an idea, um, if you're using um, printing as an example or as a comparison, and there they're using dots print, but uh, just to give you an idea, things like magazines, good quality magazines, will use 300 dots per inch, dots because it's printer. So that's where that that number comes from. Uh, things like newspapers are much lower. Um, so less than 100, uh, generally, I think is still true. So this is where those, those numbers come from. So if you're thinking magazine quality 
photographs that have to be printed somewhere, then you really want to be at 300 uh, pixels per inch. If you're looking at putting something out on social media, then you can drop it down to 72. And most of my social media pictures are down at 72. So they are um, relatively low resolution. I would never try to print them and they can only blow up so far before you start to see um, what we would call um, artifacts. So that's another difference between RAW and TIFFs on the one side and JPEGs on the other is that you tend to get artifacts. So what is an artifact? Well, that is basically just its function of the compression, compressing the file, but it may seem basically it makes the picture look very blocky. And um, if you take a JPEG that you've got, that's say a 10 meg or less, and then you just start blowing it up really big, you'll see that you get this blocky appearance in the image. And that's all that is. It's an artifact and it's caused by the compression. So, you know, the whole purpose of talking about this is that you lose detail and resolution as soon as you go from the raw or the TIFF file, so we'll regard those as more or less the same, down to a JPEG, which can be anything from a sixth of the size of um, the original raw file. It might be that. It might even be smaller than that. Um, but in order to get that... S- uh, small file size you lose a lot of the the detail so that's what an artifact is okay and i'm just running back because i've slightly lost myself but i think that covers everything so i guess just to recap what was i talking about you know if you're going if you've been using if you're used to using jpegs and you switch to raw what do you need to think about well just recapping on the camera obviously you need to be capturing in raw I wouldn't bother with RAW plus JPEG. I would just go RAW. You need to make sure that you have a package that can read your format from the camera because the format on the camera itself is likely to be a native format for that camera. So something that that camera manufacturer has determined and defined. So in my case with Canon, it's a CR2 file. So that's first question. Are you able to read? Do you have software that can read and edit that raw file? If you do, that's great because the output you want from that editor is either a TIFF or a JPEG. If you don't have software that does that, I would look at um, Lightroom and or Photoshop as my first choice. But I, I haven't looked at the market, to be totally honest. Uh, I've been using Photoshop for quite a few years now. I don't know it extremely well, but I know how to do what I want to do. So that's why I stick with it. Uh, There may be free versions of the software available. So if there are, by all means, grab those. There's lots of help on YouTube. And I would simply say, look for the things that I've mentioned. So how you look at levels, because that allows you to work on the part of the histogram, the part of the file actually has data in it. And, um, you can immediately see a difference in the file when you do that if you have got an image that is underexposed or overexposed. I would get something or look for, uh, look for some basic education on using the uh, the raw editor, the picture editor. So the raw editor on uh, Photoshop, and I, I don't know what the equivalent is on Lightroom, but it will be the main um, editor. And that it's the one that basically allows you change white balance, well, I very rarely change white balance, Um, the brightness, the color saturation, all that kind of stuff, the contrast. So look at those things and 
really, once you've got those down, you should be able to start producing images that you really like. Or if you're not sure, um, you know, Google things or, or get someone to just help you out a little bit. Okay, so the files that you're going to be thinking about are the raw file of the camera. Then once you've gone through your editor, you really want to be working with the TIFF file. That becomes the master file. So I keep my raw files anyway. They're stored um, on hard drives. Um, probably makes sense to put them on the cloud these days as that's where storage is going. But um, when I started, well, in fact, there weren't hard drives when I started, but never mind. <laughs> um, so... The TIFF becomes the master file. The raw file is the sort of absolute backup. It's the original file. So if ever I lose my files, I can always go back to that original file that I captured. And because I tend to do, I've now got in the habit of doing a certain sequence of things, I can generally reproduce my edited file pretty easily without thinking about it too much because I tend to do certain things. Although my, my tastes have changed a little bit over time, so um, there, there might be some changes, but essentially it's the same thing. But the TIFF file becomes the master file. Do all of your editing on the TIFF file, and then when you've got the final image that you're happy with, convert that to a JPEG, and it might be a smaller JPEG at a 72 um, pixels per inch so that it becomes a small file less than 10 megs and then that's the one that you would use if you're using it using the file for social media or websites or anything like that using tiff files um, is also difficult if you want to share the file because they tend to be quite large uh, tiffs can be anything up to four gigs they can be pretty big files so you can't email those so jpegs are also useful if you're in a discussion with someone and you, you want a, a kind of a rough thumbnail kind of image to share, you, it's much easier to share a JPEG. So you could easily pop out a JPEG and send that. I think most, um, certainly with Google, um, you've got up to 20 megs, I think is the current um, file attachment limit before you have to then go into uh, storing it on a Google Drive. So that means it's very easy if you keep it below the 20 megs as a JPEG to give someone at least an idea of what the image is. And that's a reasonable size JPEG. Um, if you need to change or transfer the TIFF, I tend to use WeTransfer. It's, um, it seems to be quite a robust way of transferring large files. And, um, generally that it works out pretty well. So, uh, I, if you're in that situation where you need to transfer a file, but you really want to transfer the, the full file, I, I would suggest going down that path. And there is a, a free version of WeTransfer. I think you can uh, register so that you've got your own account and it will remember your contacts if that's important, but um, pretty straightforward to use. Okay, um, I think that's it. I hope that's been useful. Um, as always, when I talk through these things, at the end I feel like I've rambled a bit, but hopefully I haven't. And as I've said, the idea at the beginning was to try and decomplicate using raw files. So this may have sounded very complicated. Uh, I feel like I've repeated most of it two or three times anyway going through it. But really, it isn't. You've just got three things, to the three file types to talk about that I mentioned. Some very simple processing to do in an editor to get the results you want. And then in most cases, the final output will be a JPEG. But the difference will be in the quality of the image in that JPEG. Uh, things like contrast, things like color, 
just the overall feel of that image is likely to be much better than what you would get with a straight JPEG off the camera. So, um, however, that aspect of the creativity is in your hands. <laughs> so there you go. All right, so that's it. I hope you found that useful and I'll speak to you again in the uh, the next podcast. So bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the, um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcasts and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 